Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge, where we look at geopolitical issues in historical context with Ali Ansari, Professor Ali Ansari, and me, Suzanne Ray. Today's episode is called Knowing Your Enemy. Ali, we're going to start with a question that I think you know the answer to, but nonetheless, it's a little quiz. What is the thing that the following couples have in common? Queen Elizabeth I of England and Mary Queen of Scots, Napoleon Bonaparte and the Duke of Wellington, and Churchill and Hitler. Thank you, Suzanne. Well, I sort of feel this that there might be a trick question coming up here, but the answer, I think, if, if I've got this right, is that, of course, they didn't know each other or they never met. I they think never that's the met. They never met. So the, the question is, is whether in actual fact they knew each other better mm. because they never actually met, which is a sort of a, an interesting conundrum, isn't it, really? This came about, Ali, because a close friend of mine was drawn into a thing on Twitter, which was um, degrees of separation thing. So how many, how many links you have to go through to get to Hitler? And we realised by talking about it that there's a lot of ways of getting to Hitler, but Churchill is not one of them because they never met. And that made me think about the, the sort of importance or not of personal relations when you're thinking about how you approach a geopolitical problem. And particularly, but not except we're going to go and talk about all sorts of different aspects of those, the, the personal relations between leaders. And in the case of those three examples, Elizabeth and Mary, Napoleon and Wellington, Churchill and Hitler, it, it, you know, that, that sort of enmity was so profound that the fact that they had never met each other is a really interesting issue to sort of discuss. And it was totally hypothetical and essentially pointless, but to say, would they have, would it have ended differently if they had? Because in each case, one of the two ended up dead. <laughs> so, and the other, the other one went up, to, went on to glory. So you know, it worked out for one of the pair, but but not the other. And then in the context of the discussions that we're having at the moment uh, about you know, so what is the best course of action when relations are deteriorating, when one side conducts an outrageously hostile act, is the best mm. action to cut off relations, say I don't want to see you again, or is it to go and see them? which is the debate that's playing out in Europe at the moment. And we don't want to have that big debate, but we do want to look at this question of, does your answer to that change if you have mm. met the adversary personally, if you know them personally? Well, I suppose the question here is, um, you know, whether not knowing them personally gives you a degree of objectivity and impartiality as to their motives, that knowing them personally sort of slightly... I don't know, sanitizes in some ways what they may, may be up to. I think, you know, I've always been of the inclination that, you know, as to paraphrase, I think, you know, Churchill, George Orwell is better than War War, and that we must always maintain channels of communication. But there does come a point, of course, when if the other side isn't actually mm. interested in actually engaging in a dialogue, and I mean that, in, you know, actually engaging in some sort of conversation, discussion, dialogue, which would require compromise in some ways, then, you know, there is a question mark about what the point of that engagement is. But it's also interesting. I mean, the three the three pairs that you've taken, which are very interesting, of course, their relationships are all quite different. I mean, of course, Elizabeth I is the one that has the most direct hand, obviously, in the death of her adversary. And yet at the same time, she probably 
you know, it pains her to do it in a way because she sees obviously Mary Queen of Scots as a fellow royal. But also, you know, she has a degree of respect that clearly you don't have between Churchill and Hitler. Whereas there is also a degree of respect between the Duke of Wellington and Napoleon in terms of their obviously military prowess and and and, and certainly from Wellington to Napoleon, I would say perhaps not from Napoleon to Wellington. But it, the, those relationships are... Uh, you know, quite different in their own ways. But it, it's interesting that with in Churchill and Hitler in particular, you know, Chamberlain obviously meets exactly. Hitler and has this sort of notion somehow that you can exactly. do business with him. And I I always like this idea that, you know, in, in Chamberlain's approach to Hitler, he always sort of tended to try and project his own prejudices onto the other side and say, well, it's all, you know, it's something that can be solved by a good discussion. We can get down and have a tea or a coffee or whatever and, and sort of because it's all a big misunderstanding you see and you see this repeated you know again today I mean uh, presumably you know there are some people that think we can just sit down with Putin and it'll all be sorted out because it's all a huge misunderstanding that distance that Churchill has in a way perhaps allows him with others to analyze it more coldly more objectively and say well you know Hitler talks a good talk but frankly you've got to see what he does and that's the thing so Again, it, it's an interesting dynamic that we have to look at. And as as with our previous discussion where we looked on, you know, escaping history and the role of history in, in policymaking, there's obviously not one simple answer to this. A lot of it depends on context. So when I was thinking about this, the obvious yeah. and probably boring parallel is Chamberlain and Hitler and Churchill and Hitler. But what it's useful for is exposing the question of whether there's an advantage to be gained by having a dialogue, by knowing who you're talking about, or whether it's actually a disadvantage because it makes you inclined to to hope for reasonableness, to think, well, I just have to have one more meeting and I can persuade them, usually him, that actually this is the wrong course of action. And I think one could argue very convincingly that that whole thing about bringing Russia into the fold, having them at the G7, you know, it, it made people think Essentially, they're reasonable. We just have to talk to them. We'll convince them that they don't want to do that crazy thing. And so that argument, that's quite compelling. But it isn't, of course, always the case because clearly never talking to your enemy, never meeting them, uh, and we'll go on, I think it'd be interesting to hear your views on Iran on this, never meeting them clearly doesn't help either because as we've seen in these three brilliant examples, it just reaches a crescendo of, or maybe maybe it was inevitable. Maybe you maybe there wasn't a solution that didn't involve one of the two parties dying, but it is nonetheless a moment that we should sort of reflect and think in history and looking forwards. What is it that that we see? And I'm also reflecting, Ali, on what's happened in the last twelve months, really, in terms of diplomacy, by yeah. which I mean. We've seen quite a flurry of leaders going places. And we've just had it recently. We had uh, the British Prime Minister in Paris. Then he went off to America to meet the American president um, and the Australian Prime Minister. And and this is, of course, after two years of lockdown and not meeting anybody. And, and actually, or you could argue that quite a lot of things have gone awry in the world because nobody's meeting anybody. So... So now we're seeing them all traveling all the time, it, it appears, meeting each other all the time. Is that a good thing that they know each other more? I mean, it's interesting because the sort of the pandemic period sort of returns us to a, a pre-modern period when you didn't have personal contacts with people and therefore you made your sort of assessments 
based either mediated through diplomats, interpreters, others who would try and explain, you know, what the other side was up to, which, which is interesting in itself because sometimes they don't explain it very well. But also, I mean, the other thing that I, I think quite, is quite interesting, I mean, you, you're talking in some ways about two, two things here. Uh, in one way. One is that obviously I think personal contact with your ostensible friends is actually quite good. I mean, you know, there's obviously been a, a degree of friction between Britain and France. You know, it's no secret that the two leaders didn't really get on with each other, you know, Boris Johnson and Macron. But now it looks like the two leaders, Rishi Sunak and Macron, actually do get on with each other. And that matters. And then obviously, King Charles going on a state visit is obviously also going to add a little bit of icing to the cake. I think these sort of things matter in that sense. And it clearly does uh, make a difference. But then it's receptive to that, isn't it? I mean, it's receptive to a rebuilding or a reconstruction yeah. of one's relations. I, yes. I think there's a distinctive thing when you're talking about, you know, an ostensible enemy or someone who doesn't share your value system, mm. how you deal with that. And I think, you know, the point you make about Iran is quite interesting because the great sort of divide there is between the United mm. States and Iran. So prior to 1979, they sort of knew each other quite well. There were intimate. all those parties, I mean, weren't there? I mean, the yeah, all those. I mean, those are, I mean, the level of connection between Iran and the United States in the 70s, I mean, you know, there's someone has done a study of this, you know, telecommunications, for instance, in, I, th I think the United States was the number one international phone destination for people in Iran. I mean, they phoned incessantly, you know, and, and there were umpteen communication levels at a sort of a popular level, but also obviously at the level of the Shah and the president and this sort of thing, there, there, was, a, there was sort of an elite relationship. The question is, of course, is whether actually they understood each mm -hmm. other. I mean, that's the other thing, you know, that whether that level of intimacy, on the one hand, the level of intimacy, whether that meant they really understood where each side was coming from and where each side was going. But then, of course, when the relationship breaks down, I mean, that's quite interesting there. Because of the level of intimacy that preceded it, the breakdown of the relationship becomes even more traumatic. And that's where you get the language of betrayal a lot, you see, because people say, well, we thought we were friends. If you look at American accounts, you know, it's, there are books, you know, with titles like Paid with Good Intentions mm. and this sort of thing. So, you know, they feel that they've been very ba badly let down by the Iranians. The Iranians, of course, the revolutionaries feel quite differently. They feel the Americans have let them down very badly, so on and so forth. And there is also, interestingly, another, uh, I think, a, a former CIA uh, chap wrote a book called Know, mm. know Thine Enemy, actually, which is, which is all about Iran. You know? And the question is, is, is really how well did they know them? How well did they actually do a, a deeper dive to what extent that they bring their own prejudices to what extent that they, you know, all the things that we're familiar with in terms of confirmation bias and optimism bias, you know, to what extent was that relationship in some ways made worse by the fact that there was so much contact? They made assumptions. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the interesting, you know. Can I ask a yeah. factual question about the leaders? Sure. So I'm assuming that the presidents knew the Shah and then in 1979, there was that sort of rupture. Has there yeah. been, what level of contact has there been between the leadership of the two countries since then? Between the leadership, there's been, there's been basically nothing as, wow. as, uh, other than, you know, obviously some of the uh, closed door, you know, secret meetings that may have occurred mm. between officials, mm. but no leadership. I mean, I think the only, <laughs> the only leadership meeting that occurred was actually in a, in an American drama serial that sort of fantasized about the fact that the Iranian president was going to come and visit, you know, this is during the Obama years, it was going to come to Washington on a, on a visit, which, you know, was sort of fantastical stuff. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that the only real encounter between Iranian officials and American officials on a systematic basis is, is at the UN. Yes. So it's basically Iranian officials in New York. And it was quite interesting that they would describe them as the New York set. 
because they were seen as actually going a little bit native. I mean, they quite enjoyed it in New York, you know, and they had quite a good time. And of course, they sort of promoted a much more pro-American narrative and, you know, we need to build bridges and this and that and the other. Of course, in Tehran itself, this is precisely the problem. They said, well, you've gone native, haven't you? You know, you're sitting in New York and, and, and you've been corrupted by all this. So it was a very difficult sell for them when they came back to uh, came back to Iran as to how to do it. And, you know, I don't think any senior official, I mean, there has been, I think, I can't remember now, but I think at one stage there might have been encounters at the, in the core. I mean, we, we, we get into these sort of fanciful notions where if the Iranian president happens to shake the hand of the American president because they bumped into the corridor at the UN at the meeting of the General Assembly. But this is, this is you know, I mean, and I think there was a phone call at one stage. There was a phone call with Rouhani, I think, at one stage. But it's, you know, it's minimal. It's absolutely minimal. And the key there is that the real decision maker in Iran, who's the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, that has no contact whatsoever, other than you know, Obama, of course, took the leap of writing letters to him, but of course, he didn't respond to the letters. So it wasn't, you know, I mean, it's a very fractious relationship. Whereas, interestingly, Putin makes a point of always going, when he goes to Iran, he goes to mm. visit the Supreme Leader and he sits there and he does public diplomacy and private diplomacy mm. pretty well with Khamenei. He knows how to flatter his ego. You know, there was at one point where, I mean, wait for it, you know, one of the officials said that you know, when Putin saw Khamenei, he saw the face of Jesus Christ, you know, in Khamenei. Now, gosh, what, what the hell does that mean? You know, interestingly enough, Putin never denied it. You know, he never denied it because, of course, it flatters. It flatters. It does the trick. You're not going to get anyone in the West saying that, are you? I mean, it's not, you know, it's not going to happen. So that's an element where Putin, I think, has built up a very personal relationship with Khamenei. And they sort of understand each other because they share I think, as we've discussed before, uh, an ideological worldview that they can both relate to. Mm. We, on the other hand, in the West, can't relate to this. You know, I mean, this is a problem. We, we're constantly at odds because, you know, that dynamic is is quite different. And if we go back to the historical examples, I mean, the three that you picked, which is quite interesting, you know, Elizabeth versus Mary Queen of Scots, actually, the relationship is pretty, you know, they're coming from the same worldview. I mean, they, they have, it, and that's the problem, of course, because Elizabeth I is panicking that Mary Queen of Scots is trying to depose her. You know, mm. as a legitimate. Yeah, monarch. so they're, they're, they're leadership rivals. Exactly. They're, they're, and they completely understand where they're coming from. Mm. Napoleon and Wellington, again, you know, what you're dealing with here is, of course, geopolitical rivals, but in some ways, not you know, ideological rivals in in, in a sense that you find in the modern period where Churchill and Hitler are clearly coming from vastly different ideological uh, ideological uh, backgrounds. But then, of course, I mean, I'll throw this one back at you, actually. I mean, here, what about Churchill and Stalin? You know, because obviously they're coming from very ideal, and yet somehow a relationship is built, isn't it? Well, I think so. Thank you for raising this, Ali, mm. because I was reading a fascinating article the other day. As soon as I started thinking about this, I started to think, well, who met who and when and what yeah. were those relations like? And obviously, we're not going to talk about everybody's relations with everybody in this. But I became quite interested in in Churchill's relationship with Stalin because it was quite late in developing. And when you when you look at Churchill, of course, he had been vehemently anti-communist, anti-Bolshevist, anti the Soviet Union, and sudden and and you know and the first couple of years of the Second World War were you know Russia was on the other side. So. So there's no reason for them to have met or to be friends. And yet in 1942, 
Churchill went to see Stalin in Moscow to mm. get to know him. And he did it before Roosevelt, uh, but with Roosevelt's blessing. So that's also you know, not uninteresting, that question about what happens when your closest ally decides to go and see your mutual enemy. And his wife at the time, Clementine, wrote that this was a visit to the ogre in his den. And there's there's a whole, I'm, I might give you, I'm, I'm going to describe the thing, but there's a whole load of really interesting sub-questions that this draws out, like what is the difference uh, in a relationship between one that is conducted through correspondence or telegraphic or telephone and meeting in, in real life? Because I think Churchill felt that it was just not going to work if they were going to have to do everything through telegraphic correspondence or through their ambassadors. And you sort of sense that in the person of Churchill. He's like, I'm going to go and see this man. And he perceived himself and Stalin as essentially being, even though they had whole scale ideological differences, essentially being warlords, you know, wartime leaders of great nations. With, with, a, with a certain clarity about purpose, right? With a total clarity about purpose. And do you want to tell you a little anecdote about the ambassador? Well, this is the thing. I mean, I was going to say, since you raised it, because it because it is fascinating that when, I mean, to, to draw back a bit, obviously Churchill gives Stalin all these warnings about an imminent, you know, Nazi yes. assault on Russia. And, and, and interestingly, says, no, Stalin no. says, no, no, it's perfidious Albion causing mischief again. And, you know, we're, we're, I mean, and this is, I think also people forget really just how tight in some ways Stalin and Hitler were prior to this time. I mean, they, I mean, certainly from Stalin's perspective, he thought he had a fairly good relationship going there, even though he didn't fully trust Hitler, but nonetheless, uh, things seemed to be going well. The interesting example, in the, as, as we're raising it, is the ambassador that was sent to uh, Moscow, Stafford Cripps, who was a well-known British Marxist and was sent as ambassador to Moscow in 1940, and then, of course, left in 1942. But there was this impression that because Stafford Cripps was a Marxist, he would sort of suit the environment he was working in and he would be able to build relations with Stalin. But of course, Stalin didn't take him seriously at all because he was a British Marxist and not a Marxist who he could control. And he wasn't interested in having discussions with a sort of a, a British Marxist at all. So Churchill says, quite interestingly, and this is reported, this is, I, I should say, drawn from Roger Morehouse's book, The Devil's Alliance, an excellent book which basically says that Churchill recorded somewhere that, you know, we would have been much more constructive sending a rude duke, mm. you know, a sort of a, a member of the British establishment so that the, the Russians could have related to. Because in, invariably, what they want is uh, someone who they think represents the other side as they imagine them. Mm. They don't want someone who's going to sort of come and talk to them about things. That, they're not interested in, you know, he wasn't interested in talking about Marx to a British Marxist. He was interested in actually you know, talking to what they consider to be an authentic British aristocrat or something, you know, would be the best way to do it. Um, that's also why motivated, as you say, Churchill, to say, look, we need to develop a personal relationship, you know, uh, to see how that, uh, if that can develop. Yes. And I think he was also encouraged to do that by the ambassador who came next, who is Sir Archibald Clark Kerr, who was an eccentric and unconventional diplomat. So, is, I mean, this possibly more along the lines you're describing, who was really, um, he thought it was very important that you had personal interactions and emotional responses. And he wanted to bring about a face-to-face -face meeting between Churchill and Stalin. And of course, at that stage, so 1942, Russia was in a really difficult situation. So was Britain. We were having the, the war in North Africa. It was not going well. Charlie, Stalin was saying, I want you to open a second front in Europe. There was no way at that moment in time that that was going to 
be possible from a British perspective. So then there was this kind of big debate about what's the point of going to see Stalin if you're just going to have to tell him that you're not going to do what he wants you to do. And the view was, well, actually, we have to go and talk to Stalin. And I think Churchill also thought that if Russia was going to push into Europe, and it clearly had its eye on the Baltic states, for example, then then you actually had to get in there early and start talking about what would victory look like? How are we going to divide up Europe? That has to be on the basis of a relationship. So this is a really interesting question about knowing your enemy. So what, at this point, um, Stalin is an acute rival. I think maybe we mm. just made that up, but I think we could say that. So eventually, I mean, there's a whole load of toing and froing. Um, Roosevelt isn't going to come, but he does actually send one of his ambassadors there. Um, but actually, very small team of so it's not a whole load of foreign office courtiers and things it's it's a much smaller team because essentially it's about building a personal relationship then they had a series they get there and they have a series of meetings and the first one sir archibald clark kerr took the official minutes but he puts a lot of can i read it i mean there's quite a lot yeah, sure. but i think it's quite fun so this is their first meeting between churchill and starling uh, recorded by clark kerr he says It was interesting to watch the impact of the two men clash and recoil and clash again, and then a slow but unmistakable coming together as each got the measure of the other. And in the end, much apparent understanding and goodwill. To me, who am in a way responsible for the meeting, it meant some very anxious moments. But now the two men know each other and each one will be able to put right value on the messages and they are frequent that pass between them. At times, both were very blunt, as if each one sought by his bluntness to make a dint upon the other. I think that each succeeded and the dints were deep. Each one was very restless. Stalin kept getting up and walking across the big room to a writing table in which he delved for cigarettes. These he tore to bits and stuffed into his absurd curly pipe. In his turn, the PM, when he had shot a bolt, got up and had a walk, pulling from his heated buttocks the seat of his trousers, which had clearly stuck to them. There was something about this dumpy figure plucking at his backside, which suggested immense strength, but little distinction. Later, the PM was in very good humour, but he felt he had got away with it. So that's that. And then, of course, the next day, so everything's, everything's happy. But then the next day, they meet again and they have a terrible row. And part of the reason for the terrible row is the quality of the interpreter. But basically, Stalin says, you know, 10,000 people a day are being sacrificed on the Russian front. Russians aren't complaining about the sacrifices, but they want to be recognized. And what's the, you know, what's Britain doing? Churchill says that he envies the Russians their glory and hopes very soon that we would show by our deeds that democracies were neither sluggish nor cowardly and just as ready as the Russians to shed blood. Um, You know, sort of row on all sides. And then Churchill says it grieved his heart that the Russians did not think we were doing our utmost in the common cause. And Stalin says it's not a case of mistrust, but only a divergence of view. If the British had been fighting the Germans as much as the Russian army, the British wouldn't be so frightened of the Germans. <laughs> Churchill says he pardoned the remark which Stalin had made on account of the bravery. And um, But he then described it as a most unpleasant discussion. Stalin had said a great many insulting things. 
I repulsed these squarely, but without taunts. Um, this is interesting because I've just watched the death of Stalin, actually, so I'm influenced by is it. This, is this all in 1942? This, this is, is the all. This is, they basically have a series. They, they, it's like a sort of like the Camp David Accords, really. Right. They're, they're in Stalin's dacha, and they have a series of meetings over a series of days. So they have a good meeting on the first day. The second day, they have an almighty row. And then for the officials, so for Clark Kerr, this is a nightmare because he's brought the prime minister over to make friends with Stalin and the two men have fallen out catastrophically on day two. And Clark Kerr says he goes to see Churchill and he finds him like a wounded lion. He declared against Stalin in ponderous Gibbonesque periods, he declared he was damned if he would keep his engagement to dine with Stalin tonight. So he says, I'm not going to have dinner with him. I just, this is awful. And Clark Kerr said, anybody you have to, and there's going to be a lavish banquet. And Churchill then agreed to go to the dinner. But do you know about his siren suits that he used to wear? Yes, yes. So he had these suits, which um, they were essentially boiler suits. Yes. And he devised them during the Blitz because they were something that he could wear quickly if he had to He put it on over whatever he was wearing and get down into the bunker underneath the treasury in Whitehall. And it was also a kind of thing that they were reminiscent of the working man's suit. They, it basically, it equaled him in a way. But of course, the, the great sort of paradox is that they were made by his tailor in German Street. And there's one in the Churchill War Rooms now in the museum uh, where the bunker was, which is a pink or sort of cerise velour one that he particularly liked wearing. There's photographs of him in his cerise velour siren suit. Anyway, he decides to go to Stalin's banquet in a siren suit, and all the Russians are dressed up in their finery, and Churchill turns up in a boiler suit. And, you know, Soviets greatly taken aback. But Stalin obviously feels that yesterday had gone badly. So he comes in with those of bonhomie and, you know, hi, how are you doing? And of course, he's working the room, and Churchill gets really irritated that Stalin's being so friendly and happy. And so he, again, he storms off and says, I ought not to have come, meaning I ought not to have come to Russia. So he's just in a complete huff. And then Clark Kerr um, thinks, I've got to fix this, I've got to fix this. So he tries the next day to persuade Churchill not to leave in a huff and to have one more meeting. And that's to be an evening meeting with Stalin, but not dinner. Churchill's booked dinner somewhere else. And a new interpreter, really noteworthily, and so they go off and they have this meeting, this extra meeting, and Stalin springs on Churchill an invitation to go back for a drink in his flat. And they go back to Stalin's flat. Churchill said he was in principle always in favour of such a policy, which is nice. And so immediately you've kind of you've taken it out of the official settings. It's worth it's worth thinking about how important the consumption of alcohol yeah. is to <laughs> the forging of relationships, because I know probably the, the British and the Russians were able to engage over alcohol probably more than the Americans and the Russians were, if I've understood that correctly. Well, I don't know. And then there's a question about whether an agreement that you make... So, so the thing about this meeting was it started at 7pm and it went on till 3am and it started with a fork buffet and then halfway through the night the, they brought in a roast suckling pig Churchill didn't actually eat any of that because, you know, who knows why not, but um, uh, Stalin ate it. And and at at three o'clock in the morning, Churchill said, I feel I've established a personal relationship that will be helpful 
And indeed, Molotov uh, wrote to the Russian ambassador to the UK that the extensive conversations in Comrade Starling's private residence produced a close personal rapport with the guest. So the whole thing is a really interesting. I mean, someone should write a ballet of it or something. And it's this the sort of the, it's, it's 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 amazing actually the effort it took, didn't it? Because as as you're as you're describing it, there are a couple of times and the whole thing could have broken down quite badly, but presumably people just persisted really to try and do that and to build a, a sort of rapport. I mean, it's interesting because you know the relationship was never. I don't think it could ever be described as warm. I mean, there's a there's that famous incident. You know, I think later I can't remember which meeting it is, but. Uh, where where Roosevelt and Stalin joke about basically liquidating the entire German officer class, you know, as a sort of a, and Churchill takes it very seriously and and sort of says, you know, we simply cannot countenance this and and almost storms out until they realise, you know, until it realises that they're, they're, this is sort of playful banter. I mean, it, it's um, curious playful banter, I have to say, but uh, you know, nonetheless, it, it, it's it's interesting because you wonder whether yes, it might be playful banter on Roosevelt's side, but I wonder if Stalin actually was really just sort of probing to see whether this was going to be a be a feasible option. But that Ali is a nod to this accusation that Roosevelt was too soft on Stalin, yes. and that he he didn't understand. He thought he was a man he could do business with, and completely failed to understand the depths of his commitment to communism to his own. To his own vision. And that, of course, is taking us right back to the Chamberlain issue. You know, is it? It is true. I mean, in that sense, presumably, church, I mean, in the, the, the meeting you've described, of course, is, is interesting because it, it shows a time when I suppose Churchill, unlike Roosevelt, had an opportunity to really spend some what we might say quality time with Stalin <laughs> and try and read him in a much better whereas whereas Roosevelt didn't have it. I wanted to also just draw in a sense, almost a comparison, a different comparison, and that's Ribbentrop in London, actually. Mm. Because Ribbentrop also failed in London because he tried too hard to play up to what he thought was a sort of a, a, a British aristocratic, you know, social life. And, of course, people in Britain, in the same way as, as Stalin didn't like, you know, Stafford Cripps, uh, so, you know, the British establishment thought that Ribbentrop was a bit, how should we say, you know, nouveau and and and... and Really, quite vulgar. I mean, that was that that was the problem. And in in Ribbentrop's ambassadorship in in London, was really a failure. I mean, it it didn't work at all well because he'd also completely misread his hosts mm. um, and hadn't understood. Uh, you know, he was trying to flatter them actually mm. by by you know going on fox hunts and all this sort of thing. Mm. <laughs> uh, but I mean, they didn't buy it. They would have much rather had presumably someone who was much more authentic to what they understood. Uh, the the Third Reich represented, presumably. Who knows? I don't know. So complicated, Ali, because what we're saying is if they'd have had someone exactly like Hitler, then then a series of different judgments might have been taken during the 1930s about what Hitler represented. But would that have... This is ridiculous because we're never going to... But, but it is an interesting question. Is it, it Does greater understanding lead to a better... Better policy, by which I mean a policy where fewer people die in the end, um, mm. so less. I war. mean, I think the case with Ribbentrop actually is that, you know, it just simply enhances the misunderstanding mm. because they just dismissed him. I mean, they saw he was vulgar and pointless, and therefore the sort of one might even say condescension that might have been, you know, the the, the sort of attitude that the British establishment had to the, the Nazis. And of course, we do know that, that a number of uh, members of the British establishment were actually quite sympathetic to the Nazis and, and to their agenda, uh, at least at this stage. Um, 
so it's i mean it's curious whether what ribbentrop actually did was by playing up to a particular role he just increased that level of you know unknowingness i mean really because nobody was interested nobody was really interested in actually even engaging with him um so in some ways you know the worst possible diplomat so ali what we're going to do is we're going to stop talking say this is part one of two and we're going to come back for part two of two but before you do that i'm going to go back to that beginning about is it better to have met your enemy or not when you look at the number of british people particularly aristocratic in some way, but not exclusively, who did meet Hitler in the 30s and concluded that he was actually not all bad at the very least. The famous one being Lloyd George. Well, there's a lot, you know, the Duke of Buccleuch went to Hitler's 50th birthday party, Unity Mitford, you know, so, so a number of people who were prominent figures, either because they were members of the ruling class or because they were members of the social ruling class, knew Hitler personally. And and that that knowing didn't make them think we need to do something to stop this man. But that's the question, though. The question yeah. is knowing. I don't think they did, did they? Ah. What they did is they. <laughs> do you see what I mean? I mean, yes. what they did is they reinforced their own prejudices because they had a belief post Great War that we don't want war. Therefore, they were going to look for evidence to justify their preconception. So, the question is 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 actually meeting someone, does that mean you actually know them or does it just simply reinforce your own prejudices and preconceptions? You know, are you going there to actually find out about the individual or are you going there to try and reinforce a preconception that you already have? And I think these are interesting things that we can continue in the next episode, actually, where we can look at the way in which diplomats have on occasion made things worse, actually not made things better and how we, you know, at the end of the day, uh, find ways to know your enemy. Lovely, Ali. Brilliant. So part two of two coming up shortly. Goodbye.